This morning we are going to be looking at Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. If you want to use the Bibles from the back table or the one they've given you, you can turn to page 975 to find this reading. As we begin, I'd like you to consider how you respond to weakness. I think if you put much thought into that, you quickly realize, well, it depends uh, on the person who's weak, right? If you uh, come across a a child who's weak, maybe an infant, you you feel lots of sympathy, right? You understand this this little child needs help. They need comfort. Perhaps they need food or to have their diaper changed. You understand uh, there's a lot of need there, and they can't do anything about their weakness. If you have a teenage child who's frustratingly weak and seems unable to care for themselves, you have a lot less sympathy, don't you? Your, your, your time of sympathy is much shorter before you perhaps become impatient and aggravated. How do you bear with weakness? As we consider this passage, we're going to see the Apostle Paul call us to bear with one another and to bear each other's burdens, to specifically bear the burdens of others who are caught in sin. As we read this morning, I'm going to actually back up two verses to verse 25, because I think we see this pat- this, uh, these two verses at the end of, verse of chapter 5 as kind of a transition, uh, where Paul is transitioning from what he's taught us about the fruit of the Spirit to applying that fruit in the life of the church. So listen to God's word here from Galatians 5, beginning with 25 and going through 6 verse 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. As we've gone through Galatians, over the last few weeks, we've entered the part of the letter where Paul begins to apply his doctrine. This is a common pattern in Paul's letters. The, the first half or maybe two-thirds of a letter will be more theological in nature. But at some point, he, he usually turns to, to apply the doctrines he's taught to the life of the church. So in the first four chapters of this letter, as you well know by now, Paul has argued that no one can be justified by their works. The big doctrine he's been arguing for is that we can only be justified in God's sight, declared righteous, by faith in Christ who gave himself for us. But now he's answering the question, well, since we are free from the penalty and power of our sin, how should we live? How should we live as free people? He's told us already that we should not use this freedom as a, as a reason to indulge in sin, but this is a freedom God has granted us so that we can love and serve each other, so that our faith can work itself out in love. He's already told us that in chapter 5. So if we've trusted in Christ, Christ's self-giving for us, for our salvation, then that should work itself out in our lives mirroring Christ's self-giving. 
our lives should be characterized by loving Christ-like service to each other. This love is not something that we manufacture through our own willpower. It's God's work in our lives. So the reason that we want to love and that we're able to love is because God has sent his spirit into our hearts. Last week we saw that the fruit of the spirit, the characteristics of this love are that it's gentle love, patient love, faithful love. It's marked by all of the fruit of the spirit. And he said this love is the opposite of the works of the flesh. It's the opposite of pride and immorality and envy that tears communities apart. As Paul explains how this love should play out in the Christian life, he turns his attention specifically on the church's life. So we read those two verses from the end of chapter 5 to to draw this out. If, If we live by the Spirit, we should keep in step with the Spirit. And then he immediately practically applies what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Since Christ has worked in our lives, since God's Holy Spirit has been poured out into us to give us new life, and since we are seeking to walk in this way, to live consistently with this new spiritual life, then that should change the way we live as a church. We should not be marked in the church by selfish ambition, by trying to stir up fights with each other to to get ahead. We shouldn't live with secret resentments of each other that, that lead to divisions. To put it positively, Paul would say that the evidence of the Spirit's leading in our church is that we would be a church characterized by humble love. We will keep in step with the Spirit by praying for each other. Instead of harboring secret resentments and envies, we'll be secretly praying for each other. And then by working to build up one another's faith. This is what a spirit-led church looks like. As we move into chapter 6, Paul continues to play out these themes. So he's exposed the works of the flesh, he's described the fruit of the spirit, but now he imagines a scenario in which spirit and flesh collide. What do spirit-led people do when they find a brother or sister who's been caught up in some sin? That's what he tells us about in Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is in, in caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Paul's goal now is to continue working out the practical applications of the spiritual life in a real-world church. He's answering the question, what do the fruit of the Spirit look like when they're active in a bunch of Christians living together? How do spiritual people live in a world where sin and weakness are still with us? The verses we're looking at here are part of Paul's answer. Today we'll see that spiritual people seek to gently restore those caught in sin and bear each other's burdens while keeping watch against sin in their own lives, knowing that they will give an account to God. Let me say that sentence again, because that's going to have all the key ideas of our outline. Spiritual people seek to gently restore those caught in sin and bear each other's burdens 
while keeping watch against their own against sin in their own lives, knowing that they will give an account to God. So this morning we're going to walk through three key ideas here that we're called to gently restore those caught in sin. Gently restore. Number two, we're called to bear each other's burdens. Bear each other's burdens. And three, to keep watch against our own sin. Keep watch against sin. So let's look at this first part, this first key idea. As we think about this first clause, spiritual people are to seek to gently restore those caught in sin. We have to first clarify what we mean by spiritual people. It's tempting to read this and think, okay, well, there must be a, a subclass in the church that Paul's talking about. Those are the spiritual ones, and the rest are not spiritual. But in the context of this letter, the, the weight falls on seeing that all Christians are spiritual people. Right? All who've trusted in Christ have received the Spirit of God. We've all been made alive by God's Spirit. We're all walking in the Spirit. Paul says this, right? If you are alive in Christ, if you, if you live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. There are no Christians who don't live by the Spirit. If you are a Christian, you live by the Spirit. The Spirit is in you. You are a spiritual person. So spiritual here does not refer to a special class of Christians in the church. There's, there's room to make distinctions about there's less mature and more mature, but there's no such thing as a, a not spiritual Christian. To be a Christian is to be spiritual. And so Paul is, is commanding this to the whole church. You who are spiritual means everyone who has the Spirit. Every member of the church is called then to join in this work of gentle restoration. It doesn't take much imagination to see why a command like this would be necessary especially to the Galatians, where there are already uh, evidence that, that they were divided. Paul has to warn them already not to bite and devour each other. He's warned them multiple times against envy and these works of the flesh that divide. But our natural tendency for all of us is if, if we know somebody and their sin is exposed, we tend to, to react negatively, to, to be condescending and, and judgmental, to be maybe even severe. We, we might think that righteousness requires a kind of severe approach, right? If we want to love the truth or we want to fight against the works of the flesh, maybe we do need to come down hard on this brother or sister whose sin has been exposed. But Paul says, if we find a brother or sister ensnared in some sin, gentleness is called for. The discovery of sin is an occasion for the display of of the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul defines both the goal and manner of the work. We're to seek the goal of restoration, and we're to seek that goal in a gentle way. So what does this mean? The first place we should look to understand this gentle restoration is to look to the gospel itself. We should let the gospel define gentle restoration for us. The gospel, we know, deals honestly with sin, and so should our gentle restoration. It's clear in what Paul says here that gentleness is not a call to minimize sin or pretend it doesn't exist and just sweep it under the rug. Gentle restoration is not acceptance of sin or 
allyship with sin that we see the world promoting, right? The world says, to, to love me, you must affirm all that I do and feel. We recognize that kind of worldly acceptance is no love at all. It really just leaves people trapped in their sin. The word behind restored here can be used in other parts of the New Testament to describe fishermen mending their nets. Or in other parts of Greek literature to describe a doctor mending a broken bone. The gentle work that Paul calls us to here is a work that first requires us to acknowledge something's wrong, something's broken, something's out of place, and it needs to be mended, it needs to be restored. It it requires us to call those in sin to repentance. The great English preacher C.H. Spurgeon said that this text doesn't mean that we're to spy out our brother's faults. That's not what gentle restoration is all about. But it does mean that when sin is uncovered, we should not ignore it. We should move towards the one caught in sin, even if it's awkward, not because we want to see them exposed further or humiliated, but because we want to see them restored. If a person is caught in sin, they're going to be restored through repentance and faith. That means they must own their sin as sin. We have to be prepared when we do this that for many of us, any kind of confrontation or talk of sin may feel harsh or severe in and of itself. This may be our personal disposition, or maybe it's because of the way our culture views these things. We think any kind of confrontation like this is just distasteful. But if we would be led by the Spirit, and if we would keep in step with the Spirit, we must be willing to work for the restoration of those who are caught in sin. We must have our definition of gentleness formed by God and his word, and not our own intuitions. Or we should seek to have our intuitions conform to God's ways. So if we see a brother or sister in sin, or if a brother or sister confesses some sin to us, We need to be ready to help them address it. Not to be on the lookout to spy them out, but to be ready to encourage them. Not to delight in confrontation, but when sin is exposed, to lead those to to, to confess to repentance. Gospel gentleness calls us to move towards those in sin for the sake of their restoration, by calling them to repent, and by encouraging them them that our Lord stands ready to forgive those who repent, and trust in his work. So first we see gospel gentleness calls for working for repentance. But another way to describe gospel gentleness is to look at Jesus himself. So Lucas read for us from Matthew 11, 28 and 29, when Jesus reveals his heart as gentle and lowly. His, he gently and lowly, in a lowly way, invites center, invite sinners to come to him, to cast their burdens on him and find rest find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The fullest display we see of Christ's gentle and lowly heart is in the cross when Jesus dies in the place of sinners. Now looking at the cross is really helpful because the cross tells us how evil sin really is, right? There's that hymn we sing in communion sometimes, if, if you think of sin but lightly or suppose the evil great, then look at the cross and see Jesus stricken, smitten, and afflicted. The cross tells us that sin is evil, 
It's wicked. It, it must be judged. For sin's price to be paid for, it required the Son of God to give himself, to lay down his life. So this shows us the, the severity of sin and God's righteous judgment. But at the same time, we see Jesus lovingly and willingly laid down his life. He gave his life. He delighted to do it. And so here at the cross, we see the gentleness of the gospel. At the same time, the cross of Jesus exposes the wickedness of our sin, and God provides the remedy for our sin. He reveals himself to be the great restorer of rebels. By faith in him, by faith in Christ, enemies are reconciled to God. Sinners become sons by faith in the Son. And so when we find a brother or sister in sin, we want to move forward with Christ's gentleness based on Christ's work. We want to take the hand of that sinner and place it into the hand of the gentle Savior. We want them to know that Jesus is ready to save them, full of pity joined with power. If they're a brother in Christ, we want them to know Jesus is ready to receive them back into full and unfettered fellowship, that they can worship God with a clear conscience because of what Christ has done. So since Christ's spirit lives within us, we seek to serve each other with Christ's own gentleness, with Christ's own restoring love. In that sense, defining gentle restoration in terms of the gospel helps us to see what restoration really is. As I've already alluded to, the ultimate restoration is a, a sinner reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ. And so if someone's truly a Christian and they are, they're caught in sin, then to restore them is in large part to remind them of what's already true about them. If they are trusting in Christ, they are reconciled to God. And so we seek to restore them by urging them, don't continue in those works of the flesh that are contrary to God. Don't continue in those things that dishonor God and, and grieve the Spirit of God. We're saying, brother or sister, live as you are. Repent of your sin and, and live as you are, alive in Christ, filled with His Spirit. Don't keep indulging whatever thing this is that you've gotten caught up in. The restoration is a, a restoration to enjoy fellowship with God once again. As David prayed in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of my salvation. We want to see our brothers and sisters enjoying God once again. We can also see in this word restore the idea of restored to church fellowship. We know that there may be cases where someone's caught in sin and when they're confronted, they don't repent. Their knee-jerk reaction is to, to stubbornly resist the corrections of the church. In those cases, as we've experienced, the church may have to remove them from membership. But we want to see even this act as an act of gospel gentleness. It's a way for the church to speak honestly to those who aren't living consistently with their profession of faith. And we also know that church discipline has restoration as one of its goals. So we hope that by removing somebody from membership, that will be part of what God uses to help them see their need for Christ and their need for church fellowship. We hope that the, the brother or sister who's now unrepentant will repent 
and they'll be restored to fellowship. Both, again, fellowship to, with God, that they'll know the joy of their salvation, and the fellowship of the church. We want to see them restored. In all this, we see that restoration is God's gospel work. It's something he must ultimately do. We are, again, ambassadors of the gospel. And it's through faith in the gospel that sinners are reconciled to God. By faith in the gospel, those who were once alienated from God are become one with him, become part of God's family. And when God makes someone part of his family in the kind of the, the universal way, the universal church, he wants them to become part of local churches. So both these kinds of restoration are bound up together. When we find a brother or sister in sin, we should seek to gently restore them through the gospel by proclaiming the gospel to them, both God's righteousness and his judgment of sin, but also his mercy and willingness to forgive sin by faith in Jesus Christ. We seek to move towards that brother or sister with Christ's own gentleness and love. So that's the first thing we can say about this gentleness. It's a, it's a gospel gentleness, but I think we can go even further and say something about gentleness in its motive and its manner. In John Calvin's commentary on this verse, he said that great harm is often done by inappropriate and excessive severity, which goes under the name of zeal, but frequently springs from pride and from dislike and contempt of the brethren. It is the duty of spiritual people to raise up the fallen. For what other purpose does their superiority have? Notice that his warning is both about the, the severity, but also the motive, the root, which he sees as pride or contempt for the brethren. Positively, then, we can say a gentle manner springs from love. Right? Go back to that illustration. You're, we're just more naturally be disposed and compassionate towards babies, right? They've got the big eyes and the cute little chubby faces, right? We love them in a sense. Maybe it's a superficial sense, but we're more disposed to be loving to them than to the teenager that looks like a grown-up, right? A gentle manner springs from motives of love. When a, a proud person discovers a failure in someone else, we discover a way to make ourselves look good if we're proud. Pride looks to score points and tear down, but love desires the good of those entangled with sin. This love drives gentleness. I can imagine that some of us would like this sermon to go very specific. You know, what, what is the method of gentle confrontation? Give me a play-by-play. -play. Give me the, the handbook for how to proceed. It's almost impossible to do something like that in a sermon, to give a, a specific recommendation for a hypothetical scenario. But one specific step we can take today, before we're aware, perhaps, of anyone caught in sin, is to cultivate this motive of love. Cultivate this motive of love for your brothers and sisters here in the church. Start today by praying for them by name, using the directory and looking at their faces and praying for them. Pray for yourself that you'll see your brothers and sisters the way that Christ sees them. Christ shed his blood to save them. Do you see them as Christ's blood-bought people, his precious possession? Do you see them as, as those who are new creatures in Christ? Pray for yourself to see them with Christ's eyes. 
And pray for your brothers and sisters specifically that they would deny their flesh, that they would walk in love themselves, that they would love God and others. The first step to being gentle is to deal with the motives of your own heart. Repent of your own pride and love your brothers and sisters. Grow in love through prayer. But what about the manner of gentleness? Once again, go back to uh, our baby illustration. Imagine yourself in the hospital room of a close friend or maybe a family member. They've just had a baby and somebody hands you the baby. Think of the way you hold that baby. You're not thinking philosophically here, but in, immediately, instinctively, you know this baby's weak. It can't even hold up its own head. It's just a little jelly, you know? And you also know it's precious. Right? You know the mom's right there. She doesn't want you to drop that baby, right? It's weak and it's precious. You're aware of the great value of this human being that's in your arms. So in that moment, you're careful. You're not careless. You're not harsh, right? This is why everyone in the hospital room gets super nervous when the three-year-old sibling asks to hold the baby, right? Woe to the person who's on the receiving end of the three-year-old's gentleness, right? And we don't need to imagine everyone who falls into sin as a spiritual baby. That's not the point. But should we, we should remember that in that moment of spiritual failure where we find that brother in sin, we're dealing with someone who is both precious and weak. In saying they're weak, we are not saying anything else than what we would say about ourselves. They're subject to temptation and exhaustion. In that moment, they probably feel very keenly their own weakness, their own shame. In saying they're precious, we're saying that they're made in God's image and they've been bought with Christ's blood. So we should be careful, considerate, seeking to avoid careless words, seeking to deal gently the way we'd want others to deal with us if we were caught in sin. We try not to be the, the spiritual equivalent of the three-year-old in the hospital room. We're striving for a gentleness that's marked by the fruit of the Spirit. This means being patient and faithful in our gentleness, not giving up or, or getting bored when the going gets tough. This means being self-controlled in our gentleness, not lashing out when progress is slow. This is joyful and kind gentleness. We're there with that brother or sister in their shame because we want to be. We want to see them restored. And we have a joyful confidence that they can know the joy of their salvation. Because we love Christ and we love each other, we're willing to have hard conversations and we want to see our brothers and sisters restored when they sin. So spiritual people seek to gently restore those caught in sin. If you're wondering, this point seems really long. When are we going to get to the second point? <laughs> Hopefully you'll be encouraged that we've already been talking about the second point, really. Spiritual people bear each other's burdens in large part by bearing with one another in our sin, by seeking to gently restore one another. This is a big part of the work of bearing with each other. Spurgeon said that to, be, to, to a good man, a fault is a burden. 
The worst burden that he has to carry is the fact that he is not perfect. That is what troubles him. For Christians, don't we, we feel that, right? Our sins are the burdens that we carry. And so we're to help each other bear those burdens. We're to walk in love and through love act as slaves toward one another. And we do the, the thing that slaves do, right? Slaves carry burdens. We try to carry one another's burdens. So this includes helping each other in our sin, but it includes much more than that as well. So we serve each other in all kinds of practical ways. We help people move. We give advice. We show hospitality. We open up our homes. We help each other in our parenting. Sometimes we babysit each other's kids. We visit the sick. We help those in their old age. We help each other in our evangelism. Whatever a brother or sister needs, we seek to help them bear that burden. Paul says this command to bear burdens is how we fulfill the law of Christ. This is especially interesting because Paul's had so much to say about not being under the law. And many of the commentators I read said it's almost as if Paul is saying, if, if you want to be under a law, here's the law. Be under the law of Christ. The law of love. Because Christ commanded us to love each other. And Christ exemplified that love. Think of how Christ acts when he sees our burdens. His response to the, the burden of our sin was to come and to take that sin upon himself. And so we are to, to show that same love by bearing one another's burdens. This shows us that the love that we're to have as Christians in the church is not a superficial or casual love. It's an invested love. Invested the way that family members are invested in each other's lives. Indeed, we are a family brothers and sisters in Christ. So here's just a few ways that we can bear one another's burdens. Well, the first thing to do if you want to bear burdens is know one another and seek to serve. We're not, again, to be spying out sins, but we should be very sensitive to each other's needs. Do you know the burdens that your brothers and sisters are bearing? Do you know what they are? Are you willing, when you find them out, to come alongside and help gently carry them? Are you willing to gently serve them? Are you sensitive enough and humble enough to serve? Spurgeon said this, the tall, rigid oak tree is uprooted by the breeze, which only bends the lonely willow. Blessed are they who never exalt themselves over the weak and afflicted among the children of God. Do you count yourself a tall, rigid oak? Are you in danger of being blown over? Do you know your own weakness and are you ready to serve those who are weak? Are you tempted to lord it over the children of God? Are you tempted to exalt yourself? Bearing burdens requires that we know each other, that we're sensitive to needs, and humble enough to serve when we find needs. Second, pray earnestly. We've already talked about how we can pray for ourselves and others to help cultivate our love, but prayer is also a way that we bear each other's burdens. Oftentimes, prayer is the primary way we bear someone else's burdens. After all, we know we can't repent for somebody else, right? We can't often remove their difficult illness, or we can't get them out of that difficult relationship. But we can earnestly and constantly bring them before God. 
Yet again, I'll quote Spurgeon. If you want to be encouraged, you should re read his sermon on Galatians 6, 2, and 5. But this is how he describes burden-bearing prayer. He says, Ask the Lord to help you when you have left that person. After speaking with much prayer and many tears, go home so grieved that you cannot sleep and keep on crying to God in secret about that soul. Burden-bearing prayer. This is not flippant or thoughtless prayer, but knowing their burdens and doing all that we can to shoulder them with them, bringing their needs to the Lord. We should pray for each other. Again, pray for your brothers and sisters here the, the way you'd pray for your own child if they were ill. Nothing else should, should, lead to, should be on our minds but the needs of our brothers and sisters when they are suffering. We should pray for each other. Third, this burden-bearing must be patient. If you get close enough to know your brother or sister's burdens, you're probably going to be close enough to find that person annoying. You'll find that your brother's weird. Your sister has quirks. You'll find some aspect of their life maybe even offensive. Definitely not the way that you would do it. We must be patient with our, with our brother and sister's weaknesses. Consider your own weaknesses, your own quirks, your own offensive habits. You probably can, can count some people who've been very patient with you. And certainly we can count the Lord as one who's been extraordinarily patient with us. He has borne our burdens. So if Christ has borne your burdens patiently, bear with others in their weakness. Remember that the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness and kindness. And so our burden bearing should be faithful and kind. So we've seen that spiritual people seek to gently restore those caught in sin and to bear each other's burdens. The last part of our theme sentence says that we do this while keeping watch against sin in our own lives, knowing that we will give an account to God. Paul calls us here in this text to keep watch against sin. We see this in verse 1, where Paul says that we are to pursue restoration. And as we do that, each one of us should keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We also see this same theme in verses 3 through 5. Paul says, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. There seems to be a, an, an A-B, A-B pattern in this text where Paul first tells us how to deal with the community, so restore one another gently, and then keep watch over yourself, and then bear each other's burdens, and then test your own work. This part of a pattern in Paul's teaching here. He says we have the responsibility both to care for each other and to watch over our own lives, to know our own temptation to sin. And so he calls us here to test our own work and bear our own load. This sounds but maybe that it's in contradiction to all that Paul said. Are we supposed to be saved by works? Are we supposed to bear our burdens in that way? But that, that's not what he's talking about. Actually, I think this call to self-examination is part of what it means to be justified by faith alone. So because we are freed from sin's penalty and power by faith in Christ, we are now to seek to put to death our sin, and to live in the freedom Christ has won for us. 
So this self-examination is not looking to my own works to save me, but it's looking to my works and asking, do my works match my faith? Or am I relying on myself? Have I fallen into the foolish pattern that Paul identified in chapter 3, where he says they've begun the Christian life by the Spirit, but they're now seeking to be perfected by the flesh? Am I relying on my flesh now? I should test my own work. The call to self-examination and testing work then is an outgrowth of justification by faith. Because we've been saved by grace, now we're to rely on God's grace as we obey. Because we've received mercy from God, we're to show mercy and be people of mercy. So this self-examination is meant to lead us back to the cross and lead us to live a life of faith working through love. Paul's teaching here also anticipates a possible misapplication of the command to bear each other's burdens. So one could hear this command, bear one another's burdens, and then make the the wrong leap to think, well, I guess that John is now responsible for my burdens, so I'm not. The command to bear the burdens of others does not mean that we can rely on somebody else's work to save us or to believe for us. Rather, Paul says, we're to humbly test our own work. And we're to do so knowing that one day we will answer to God. We must bear our own load in the sense that the salvation that the Christian life offers is a personal thing. That doesn't mean it's private, but it is personal. So I think a couple of relevant ways to to see what Paul is saying. He's saying, on the one hand, no one is saved because they're slightly less sinful than their neighbor. So we can't boast, that guy's worse than me, and therefore I'm okay. We're not allowed to do that. And we also realize that to be saved, I must trust in Christ alone. Again, it's not Stephanie's faith that saves me. It's not the church's faith that saves you. You're only saved if you personally repent of your sins and trust in Christ. We have that personal faith, and we should have good works that match that faith. If we believe, if we have been saved by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit should show up in our lives. So spiritual people are those who watch against sin as those who will give an account to God. One reason we examine ourselves is to prepare for the last day when we will meet Christ, the judge. Again, Spurgeon says, the spiritually bankrupt don't like to look at their own accounts. He says, oh, I don't like self-examination, says one. He says, so the bankrupt said. He did not like casting up his own accounts. But when a man in business does not cast his own accounts up, his accounts will soon cast him up. And when a man does not like to examine his own heart, Depend upon it. The time will come when another will examine him, and he will be found wanting and cast away as worthless. Our self-examination is for the sake of soberly asking, is my faith in Christ? Does my life match up my profession? So to be spiritual, then, is not to imagine that you are immune from temptation. To be spiritual is to know your own weakness. It's to know that you're tempted. You know, if you're dealing with a brother in sin, you may be tempted to be harsh with him. 
Or you may be tempted to the same sin that ensnared him. We should know our own weakness and watch out. This pursuit of humility is not so that we would minimize sin, as if we're a people who just say, well, nobody's perfect. There's grace for all of us. Let's not talk about sin. No, the point of self-examination is to drive us to rely on God's grace and to walk by the Spirit. We want to live with constant awareness that we have been saved by God. We are sustained by His grace. We are forgiven. And because of all that we've received and all that we are in Christ, we fight against our flesh and we pursue righteousness by God's grace. This is how Martin Luther explains Paul's instruction in verses 3 through 5. He says, Vain people love to compare themselves with others whom they know to be inferior to themselves. The apostle forbids this kind of thing and tells us to test our own work, to see how far we can really approve of it. Anyone who follows this advice will soon stop making rash judgments or remarks that are disparaging of others, since he would quickly discover whether he loves his neighbor or not. Luther goes on, everyone must give account of himself. Glory in your freedom by all means, but do not use it as an excuse to despise your neighbor's weakness. We have to understand this testing of ourselves in the context of this wider command to restore those caught in sin and to bear their burdens. Are we the kind of people who humbly serve as those who have been served by Christ? Our sense of our own sin and of God's grace should drive us to be those who are gracious. When we know that we are dependent on the same grace that our sinning brother needs, again, we're equipped for gentleness. We're ready to approach that person as one beggar showing another where to find bread. We come to them as one forgiven sinner, telling another sinner where to find forgiveness. So spiritual people seek to gently restore those caught in sin and bear each other's burdens while keeping watch on our own lives, knowing that we will give an account to God. To know God through Christ is to know him as your gentle and righteous father. To know, that, know him and know that he's not brushed aside your sin, but that he sent his son to be the sacrifice in place of you. To know Christ is to know one who's borne your own burdens. He took your sin upon himself and he carried him all the way to the grave. And so to be a spirit-filled church is to be a church that is filled with Christ himself. Christ who came to seek and save the lost. Christ who's gentle and lowly. Christ who is full of grace and truth. Spiritual people are full of Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are so thankful for the gentleness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to come to him, to cast our cares upon him, to receive his gentle burden and his light yoke. We pray that if there are ways that we are proud and harsh with the weak, 
that you would expose this pride, that you would grant us repentance. We pray that you'd help us to serve one another in love, to act as slaves to each other, to bear each other's burdens. Help us to be consumed with the good of your people, just as you are. Again, we thank you for the great grace that is ours in Jesus when we fail. It's in his name we pray. Amen.